My text this evening is going to be based on 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there and follow along. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. The title of this message is, What Are You Doing Here? This is based on a question that God asked Elijah in the Old Testament. Now, to be able to set up the context for chapter 19, I'm just going to give you sort of a running start and talk about what happened in chapter 18. The prophet Elijah has just come off of what is the most amazing pinnacle of his ministry. There's been a period of three years where no rain has fallen in the land of Israel. Uh, At the word of Elijah, as a rebuke to King Ahab, and God's people have been persecuted during this time. They're in hiding. There is a man named Obadiah who works for Ahab, who has taken a hundred prophets of the Lord and has hidden them in two different caves and is feeding them with bread and water, which is probably a very difficult thing to do during this time. There's been famine for three years. There's almost no grass. There's very little water. Um, In fact, uh, a lot of the animals are about to die, and they're out looking for grass to be able to keep the animals alive, that they're trying to hide the provisions that they have for these prophets. And as Obadiah is walking along the way, uh, he runs into Elijah, and Elijah says, hey, go tell your boss that I'm here and I want to see him. And Obadiah says, you must hate me a lot. I'm paraphrasing here. He says, you must hate me an awful lot to have me do that. And uh, he says, you know, what's going to happen is I'm going to go to Ahab. I'm going to say Elijah's here. He says, do you know there's no country in this world that Ahab hasn't sent people looking for you? He's been trying to kill you for three years. And every place where he sent people to find you, he has made the rulers of these nations swear an affidavit saying he's not here, we haven't seen him, we don't know where he is. He wants to kill you really, really bad. What's going to happen is if I go talk to him and I say, Elijah's over here, by the time I get back, the Spirit of the Lord will have taken you who knows where, you won't be here, and then I'm going to get killed. Because he really doesn't have a sense of humor, and he just doesn't like stuff like that. So please don't do this to me. And he says, go tell him. I want to meet with him. And so they have this showdown. And many of you are familiar with this passage here in 18 where they go up to Mount Carmel. And he calls the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal. They have two sacrifices. And Elijah says to the people, how long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? You need to choose who's the real God here. Is Baal the real God or is Yahweh the real God? Whoever the real God is will answer by fire. And so the prophets of Baal create an altar. They cry out to Baal. Elijah taunts them. Nothing happens. There's no fire, no response from Baal whatsoever. And then Elijah prays. And James tells us that Elijah is a man just like us. I like that little passage there in James where it says, Elijah is a man just like us. And yet he prays and fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the entire altar. The people respond in an amazing way. They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They round up the prophets of Baal. They put them to death. And Elijah 
is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Elijah sees Ahab riding in his chariot uh, going home, he runs ahead of the chariot in full strength, running full force. He runs 16 miles to Jezreel. So this is literally the high point. This is the pinnacle of the ministry and the life of Elijah. And what we're going to see as we go into chapter 19 here is how quickly things can change and how you can go from the highest point of your life to the lowest point in your life literally in a day. And I don't know whether you've ever had experiences like that where things have shifted so radically from you, from a way up to a way down or maybe vice versa, but it shows the humanity that we all have. It shows the the difficulty that we have in being able to live within this human body that experiences such a range of emotions and also to live in this world that is so turbulent and that lacks predictability. I often say to my wife, you, you never know what can happen in a day. You wake up in the morning, you think you know what your day is going to look like, you have no idea what your day is going to look like. You have no idea how that day can change the entire course of the rest of your life. Which is a really scary thought unless you trust that God is in control. So let's begin reading chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, I've always tried to process this in my mind and ask myself, what kind of a woman is this Jezebel character? Because if you read chapter 18, Elijah stands up to Ahab and 450 demon-possessed prophets of Baal. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't bat an eye. He is bold. He's courageous, even taunting in his relationship with them, his relation to them. Then Jezebel says, swears on an oath and says, I'll have your head. I'll kill you for this. And he panics and he runs to Beersheba. Now you'll hear this phrase in the Old Testament frequently where it will say, and all the people from Dan to Beersheba, from Dan to Beersheba. Well, what's significant about that? Well, it's geography. The further, furthest north city is the city of Dan and the furthest south city is Beersheba. And so when it says he goes to Beersheba, he is literally going as far south as you can get in this nation. He is heading out. He is trying to put some distance between him and this queen. So he stops there and he leaves his servant. And then verse 4, it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. How do you go from 
having the best day of your life to the next day saying, God, just kill me. How does this happen? This is the reality of Elijah. He is so low right now. He's so discouraged. He's so despondent that he literally wants to die. Verse 5, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake, cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now what I want to point out here in this moment is that Elijah is a day's journey from the southernmost tip of the nation of Israel. Uh, He is out away from civilization and God sends him supernatural provision sends him sustenance, meets his need, and recognizes what his need is. And God sends this this, uh, provision for him, this angel, to feed him and to nourish him. This is a good reminder for us, even in those moments when we are low, in those moments where we feel like we are abandoned, when we feel like God is not there, God is still with us, he is still present, He is providing for us. He's providing the things that we need. He has not forgotten us. He has not forsaken us. He's not abandoned us. But sometimes we can be so self-focused, so focused on our circumstances, and so focused on our difficulties that we don't even recognize the hand of God at work. We don't even recognize the provision of the Lord. We don't recognize the mercy of the Lord. We don't recognize the goodness of the Lord. Uh, We don't think about how God, even in this low moment, is providing supernaturally. He's meeting. He's sustaining. He is still showing his kindness. He's still showing his goodness for us. Now, there's some interesting parallels here in verse 8 where it says that he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Can anybody tell me a different name for Mount Horeb? It's called something else in the Bible. Can anyone else tell me what the other name for Mount Horeb is? Sinai. Now, if you go back in history, about 550 years before this time of Elijah, you have Moses. And Moses, on this mountain, spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of Almighty God, receiving the Ten Commandments. You also remember that Jesus was in the wilderness, this place where Elijah is, and spent 40 days and 40 nights being sustained by the Lord, not by food, and being tested by the devil. It's also interesting that when you fast forward to the time of the life of Christ, you find these three who spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and in the mountain, you find them on another mountain. You find Jesus at the mountain of transfiguration with, guess who? Moses and Elijah. 
So Elijah goes to this, this mountain. And this mountain, Mount Sinai, is 250 miles south of Beersheba. So you, you, go, from, you go from a mountain of victory, a mountain of exaltation, a mountain of profound glory uh, of Mount Carmel, this Mount Carmel experience where fire comes down from heaven and, and sh God shows himself strong and the enemies of God are defeated. You go from Mount Carmel to this other mountain. Two, two really, really different, not just geographies, but two very, very different places for Elijah emotionally. From a mountain of great exuberance, of just ecstatic euphoria, to the lowest point in Elijah's entire life. 250 miles south of Beersheba. He's on foot. He doesn't drive 250 miles. He goes 250 miles on foot. He's trying to put some serious distance between him and Jezebel. But I, I don't think it's just that. Elijah is not merely running from someone. He's running to something. There's a lot of places that he could have gone. There are a lot of places that Elijah could have gone if his, if his whole intent was to hide out. There are other places he could have landed. He's not just running away. He's running to something. Why is he going to Mount Horeb? Why is he going to Mount Sinai? What's significant about that? Well, you have to remember that in the Old Testament, the two major characters of the entire Old Testament, Moses representing the law, and Elijah representing the prophets. These guys are really the two primary characters in the Old Testament. And I think Moses being, I'm sorry, Elijah being aware of the scriptures and knowing what happened with Moses on Sinai, I think he goes to a place where he knows that God met with Moses in a very special way. And you will remember the cry of Moses on Mount Sinai when he says to the Lord, show me your glory. God revealed himself to Moses in a really profound way that he didn't reveal himself to other people. God spoke, revealed himself through a pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke, even a burning bush. But he said, with my friend Moses, I speak face to face. There was a personal intimacy that is reflected in the time that Moses spent on Sinai. And you'll remember when he came down from that mountain, having spent 40 days in the presence of God, he was so radiant with the glory of God that his face shone. And the Israelites said, please put a bag over it, Moses. Cover your face because we can't, we can't stand to look at that shine. We can't. Some people feel that way about my head when I preach. I don't know that it's your kind of glory. I'd like to think so. But, but they said, we, we can't take it. That was how radiant Moses was from this encounter that he had with God on Mount Sinai. I think that Elijah is going to Sinai 
Because having just had a Mount Carmel experience, I think he wants to know whether or not God will show up when it's just one-on-one. No crowd, no cameras, no journalists, no press, no media, just him and God. Is God going to show up for Elijah when it's just him? Is God going to reveal himself and show that he cares when it's just the intimacy of Elijah and the Lord alone? I think he's looking for something very specific here. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Is that true? Kind of, sort of, a little. But, but you got to remember, things shifted pretty radically the day before. You had 450 prophets of Baal who were put to death with the sword. And there's something else important, that when you go to chapter 18, Obadiah says to him, I have hidden a hundred prophets who are faithful to the Lord, and I'm sustaining them, and I'm keeping them alive in these two caves. So Elijah knew for a fact that there were a hundred other prophets who hadn't been put to death with the sword, and yet he's seeing everything through these lenses of pessimism. It's all doom and gloom, it's all bad, it's horrible, and it's not just bad, it is as bad as it is possible for things to be bad. I get that way, if I'm honest. I have these moments where I have these Elijah syndrome scenarios. Everything's horrible, everything's terrible. Couldn't possibly be worse. There's no one left. There's nobody faithful. The whole church is apostate. The nation's going to hell in a handbasket. They're probably going to kill me next. <laughs> and, he, and so God says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces. And it, and it broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And that's a pretty powerful wind. Shattering rocks outside the cave. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake... A fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now what is significant about these three expressions that God used to get the attention of Elijah? First the wind, then the earthquake, and the fire. What is meant by what is what do these elements represent earth wind and fire what does this mean 
If you say a 70s rock band, you're going to stay after class, so don't go there. <laughs> well, earth, wind, and fire, by the ancients, it was considered to be three of the most basic elements of the earth, of life, of existence. Water being another. These, these four elements that you need to survive. You need earth, you need air, you need fire. These things, I believe, represent the basic elements of this earth, the basic elements of this life. And it's interesting that if you look at these things, if you look at these elements of the circumstances around us, it's easy to become afraid. It's easy to become scared, to become distracted. We shouldn't look at our circumstances. We shouldn't look at the elements of this earth. When we're in a place like Elijah, we're in a cave, we're searching for answers. The place that we're going to find answers, the place that we're going to find God, is not by looking at our circumstance, to determine our future, to determine even our present. We're not going to get answers from the basic elements of this earth. We're not going to get answers from just looking at our circumstance. And it says, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. It is in the stillness, it is in the quietness of God's revelation that we find answers. We don't find our answers in the stuff of earth. We find our answers in the still small voice of the living God. And you have to be able to shut out the loud circumstances of this earth to hear that low whisper. They're, they're loud, they're beckoning. I mean, when you see rocks shattering around you, there's an earthquake, there's a fire, and these things get your attention, don't they? This is not what our focus is supposed to be on. Those things will distract you from the still small voice, from being able to see what God is doing. If you look at your circumstances, it will distract you from seeing what God is doing. Verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloth, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Does that question sound familiar to you at all? I think we just heard that question, didn't we? God comes back with the exact same question. What are you, what are you doing here? What are you looking for? Why, why are you here? What is it that you want? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Sounds like a broken record here. Same exact answer, verbatim. Elijah is not really listening to God. He's mad. He's angry. 
He's frustrated. He is stressed out. He just wants to vent. He just wants to tell God how he feels. Well, there's, okay, there's a place for that, I suppose. The problem is you're not going to get clarity from that. You're not going to get direction from that. You're not going to get answers from that. You're going to get answers from the still small voice. In order to get directions, direction and clarity and vision, you have to shut your mouth. You have to listen. You need to be still and know that he is God. There's one God in the room at this moment, and it's not Elijah. There is a God who is at work. Jesus said, my father is always working, even to this very day, and I myself am working. There is never a moment when God is inactive. There's never a moment when he is distressed. There is never a moment when he is bewildered or perplexed. There's never a moment where he's wringing his hands, where he doesn't know what to do, where he doesn't know what the next step is. God is never at a loss. God is always working. Jesus is always working. Even in those moments when you don't see what he's doing, even in these moments where you don't feel him working, even those moments when you don't feel close to him, those moments where perhaps you even feel abandoned by him, he hasn't left. He hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't forsaken you. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. And if somehow we could get our eyes off of ourselves, we could see that he hasn't left us. He's still there. He's provided nourishment. He's provided provision. He fed us with an angel, for goodness sakes. That should have got our attention. He's still there. He's still working shows up at the cave. Elijah crawls in a hole in the ground and says, just let me die. Just kill me now. Well, what does God do? God shows up. Does Elijah say, wow, God, you showed up. You did exactly what I hoped you would do. You met me here, just you and me. You showed me that you still care. You show me that you still love me. Even with my faithlessness, even with my fear, even with my doubt and my discouragement, you still showed up and you spoke my name. You still care about me. You're still talking to me. What are you doing here, Elijah? This is a personal conversation he's having with the living God. But does he focus on that? Does he see that? Does that stand out to him? No. What stands out to Elijah is, I'm mad. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm stressed. Everything's terrible. Everything's horrible. I think this is why James tells us, let me reiterate this, Elijah was a man just like you and me. And he was tempted in every way that we are tempted and tested. Elijah failed. Now it also tells us that Jesus was tempted and tested in the ways that we are tempted and tested, yet without sin. So we have this, this faithful high priest who's experienced the same things that we have and the same things that Elijah faced and the same discouragements that Moses faced. We have this Lord who was tested in the same ways that we are, but gave us an example that we can follow in his steps. 
So the Lord says to him, verse 15, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Some translations say, Go back the way you came. Sometimes we get off track. If you ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you remember him being on the path going to the celestial city, and he got off a few times, and it didn't go well. He took some detours where he thought it was a better plan to go this way or that way and ended up in the slough of despond and ended up in a few places where he shouldn't have been and had more difficulty than he should have been and Doubting Castle and other places. What does the Lord say? Get back on the path. That's what you do. When you find yourself off the path, in a pit, in a dungeon, in a cave, asking to die, what should you do? You should say, what do I know? Where's the path? Where did I get off track? Where did I start to wander away? When you feel that God is not there, and you feel brokenness of fellowship, God hasn't left. He's still there. Usually it's us that's gotten off the path. It's usually us that's gone wandering away, like that sheep escapes and wanders. We are willful and we go our own way. But the shepherd is there. He brings us back. He says, go back. Go back the way you were. Get back on the path. Just, just get back on the path. Do the things you know to do. Get back on the path. Do the things you know to do. You say, well, I don't really feel, I, don't, I can't even pray right now. I don't, I don't feel like praying. You know what? We don't pray because we feel like praying. We pray because we're commanded in Scripture to pray. Say, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like reading my Bible. I just feel like I read it. I don't get anything out of it. Read it anyway. Read it anyway. Why? Because you're commanded to. You're supposed to study. To show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Read it anyway. Pray when you don't feel like I don't feel like going to church. I just, I don't feel like it. Here's the beautiful thing. You don't have to feel like it. Just do it. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. You know what we do when we get in a, in a cave? We cut ourselves off from fellowship. We stop praying. We stop reading the word. And we lay there and we feel sorry for ourselves. You know how much that's going to help? Zero. Not at all. Nada. Nil. Nothing. That will not help any of us at any point to any level at all. What do you do? You do the things you know to do. You read the scripture. You pray. You make yourself available to the saints. You share your burdens with the saints. You go, I don't really feel like it. That's okay. You don't have to feel like it. Just do it. Do the things you know how to do. Go back the way you came, Elijah. Go back to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Heziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehel, Jehu shall Elisha put to death. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elisha is not even close to being alone. Not only are there the hundred faithful prophets of the Lord in the caves being sustained by Obadiah, there's 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They're faithful to the Lord. You're not alone. There are others who are going through the same things or have been through the same things that you are. You have to make yourself available to the body. You have to be honest. How many times have people asked you in church, how are you doing? Oh, good. Did you know lying is a sin? Don't do that. Now, it doesn't mean that every conversation with every person you have to just unload on them. But you need to find people who are mature, who are grounded in the faith. And when you're in this place of being in the cave, get honest, get real. Tell them, this is how I'm doing. This is how I'm really feeling. It's okay. It's what we're commanded to do in Scripture. Bear one another's burdens. You're not always going to get to be the one who's the hero in the moment. Sometimes you're going to be the person who has the burden. Sometimes you'll get to carry the burden for someone else. But sometimes you're going to be the one with the burden. That's okay. That's just how it works. That's just body life. That's just how it is in the kingdom of God. We all have moments of weakness. It's not, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just natural. That's how it goes. It's part of it. It's part of maturing. It's part of sanctification. It's part of growth. It doesn't mean you're a lesser Christian. I mean, do you think Elijah is kind of like a lesser guy? Do you think of Elijah as kind of like a not so great guy? Like, you know, boy, he was pretty spiritually weak. You ever prayed and called fire down from heaven and it happened? I haven't. I think Elijah's kind of like pretty up there in terms of like spiritual powerhouse. And yet look how low he is in this moment. This just happens, guys. It's, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's actually not even anything to be ashamed of. It's just a cycle. It's just what happens. We go through seasons. The enemy will try to use this, though, to keep us stuck. Being here in the cave, in one sense, is not the problem. The problem is what do you do? Do you lay there and die in the cave? End of legacy, end of story, end of first kings. <laughs> and Elijah died in the cave, the end. <laughs> is, is, that how, is that how you want the story to end? Or do you say, you know what? I got to get out of here. I can't stay here. I need to get back on the road. Go back the way you came. Get back on the road. God is still working. Eli Elijah doesn't see it. But God has a succession plan. And the succession plan is going to be greater than the Elijah plan. Now, this is hard for us to get our minds around. I personally don't like transition. I don't like change. I like things to be predictable. And I like them to be comfortable. One of the things that I've seen in the natural world is that we have an ecosystem that requires seasons. And if you don't go through each of those seasons, you don't have a healthy earth. But there are some seasons I just don't like. Now, I live in Michigan, which makes winter a lot more difficult because we get a lot colder weather and a lot more snow than you get here in Maryland. I just, I see these seasons coming on sometimes and I think, boy, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to like this. A few years back, I had a major transition in my life. A season where inevitable change was happening and God was closing a door and pushing me through a different door and slamming the door behind me. Just making it real clear. Like, this season's over, here's a new season. And I didn't like it. 
And I, and I was just going on and on about how terrible it was. And I was complaining about it. And I was moaning about it. And I was griping about it. And my wife said something pretty profound. She said, well, you know, change doesn't always have to be bad. Change can be better. I said, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, looking back, I've got a little hindsight now on the scenario. That change was better. And if you're not sensitive to allowing God to lead you through seasons of transition and you try to hang on to what's familiar and what's comfortable, you don't go through this necessary process of change in the, the ecosystem of our spirituality that is necessary for our growth. I sometimes look at change as a failure. You know, a change of job, a change, a move, a change of ministry, a change of, of relationships. I always view it as, oh, it's a, if I would have just done something better, I could have kept this from having to change. If I had just worked harder, if somehow I would have been the right kind of person, I could have kept all this change from happening. The change is God's work. You don't want to keep the change from happening. It's uncomfortable, yes. It's uncertain, yes. You don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know what it's going to feel like. You don't know how it's going to happen or it just feels like everything's turned upside down and you don't know what the new dynamics are and it just feels, can feel overwhelming and it can feel very bad. I'm just going to tell you, if you're in Christ and you really do believe Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him, for those that are the called according to his purpose. If you do believe that, you know this change will be good. If God's orchestrating it, if God's in it, it will be good. Elisha asked for and received a double portion of the anointing of Elijah. They went into an era of a double portion of anointing in the ministry of Elisha over the ministry of Elijah. It was better it was a better time. It was more spiritually rich. It was more spiritually prosperous. It's hard to fathom that because we think of Elijah as this just amazing man of God, which he was. But God had better things planned. He had a better future. And Elijah's not looking at what God's doing here. He's looking at his circumstance. You, this change in circumstance, this transition, it's for you're good, and it's for God's glory. It's okay. It's going to be good. It'll be different. You know, you have, you have some, some gains. You have some losses. It's not the same. It's different, but it's going to be good. And if you're trusting Christ and you're submitted to him, it's going to be better in some way. It's going to be better. It's going to be for God's ultimate glory and your ultimate good. Don't be discouraged by the transition. Don't be discouraged by the change. Don't feel as though, oh, it's a loss. Yeah, I mean, it's okay to feel that emotion, but you got to transcend your emotion. We're not supposed to be led by our emotions. We're supposed to lead our emotions. We're not supposed to do what our emotions tell us to do. We're supposed to tell our emotions what we're going to do. There are times where you have to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and preach to yourself. Tell yourself what you know is true. Don't tell yourself what you feel. If you tell yourself what you feel, 
you will be miserable. I promise you. I know this because I've done it. You do not want to live by how you feel. You tell yourself what is true. You tell yourself what God says. This change, this season, I don't care if it is winter right now. If it feels dark, if it feels blue, if it feels difficult for you right now. It's not going to stay there. And it's necessary. It's necessary. That winter is necessary for the ecosystem. To sustain life, you have to have the season. It's okay. It'll be all right. You'll make it. You'll live. We all have seasons that aren't our favorite. That's okay. It'll change. God is at work. So finally, verse 19. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And he said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back, for what have I done to you? Now the NLT, the New Living Translation, says this, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So in other words, this is something significant. Okay, go say goodbye to your mom and dad. But don't think lightly of what's happening here. God is doing something big. God is doing something significant. Then he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Did you know that the yoke of oxen and the oxen, in other words, the plow and the oxen, that was Elisha's means of production. Talk about burning the ship. When you kill the oxen that you plow with and you burn the plow, there's no going back. Elisha was willing to embrace the new season. He didn't look back. What did Jesus say? Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back isn't worthy of the kingdom. Don't look back on the past and say, oh, the good old days. It's just not the same. Wish it was the way it used to be. When God has shown that there's a transition, that there's a change, don't look back. Fully embrace your season. Kill the oxen. Burn the plow. Don't look back with regret. Don't look back with remorse. It's a new thing. It's a new season. It's a new day. And it's good. It's good because God is in it, because God is working, because he's in control. He's not bewildered. He's not perplexed. He's not disturbed. He knows exactly what he is doing. He has a plan. He's working and coordinating all this together, not just for his glory, but also for your good. It's going to be good. It's going to be better. But if you choose to just have this negative perspective, God will let you lay in the cave and die, if that's what you want. He'll let you do that. The good news is we don't have to. We can choose to get up, get back on the path, do the things that we know God's given us to do. It's going to be better. He has good days ahead. He has good plans for us. Do you remember the promise that he made in Jeremiah 29, verse 11? 
For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. God is working. The days ahead are good days. Will there be difficulties? Yes. Will there be transition? Yes. Will it be unlike what you're used to? Yeah. Please resist the urge to say, well, we've never done it that way before. It's a new time. It's a new day. It's a new era. Will everything that happens be good? No. Will it all work together for your ultimate good and God's glory? Yes. Embrace the season. Embrace the newness. Kill the oxen. Burn the plow. Don't look back. Move forward. Embrace the season. God is at work. And he's inviting you to be in the work. There's a transition. There's a new day. And it needs to be that. You can't stay in one season forever. Or the whole ecosystem of, of the kingdom of God, it doesn't work. You have to move to the next season. But it's okay. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Do the things you know to do. Even when you don't feel like it, do the things you know to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are at work. Lord, I pray even for this church body that's going through transition, It's feeling the, the, the stress of change. Maybe there's some fear, maybe there's a little trepidation of what you're doing here. and It's not going to be the same. It's not supposed to be the same. But it's going to be good. Lord, I just pray that you'll give everyone here faith and courage. Lord, that they won't look back and they won't allow the enemy to whisper doubts and fears into their minds. That they will be excited about what you're doing. That your kingdom is advancing. It's moving forward. It's not retreating. It's moving forward. It's advancing. Lord, I just pray that you would complete the work that you've begun here with these people the ministry that has begun through this church. Lord, I pray for Pastor Rob and his family that you would just show them supernaturally with clarity and direction the plans and purposes that you have for them and what you want them to be and to do and how you want to continue to use them in your kingdom. Help them to have faith that what you're doing and how you're transitioning them and moving them is of you and that it's good and that it will be for your glory and their good. And Lord, I pray for the new pastor and his family who are coming. Just pray your anointing on them, Lord, that they would have a special blessing of, of grace and favor as they seek to lead this ministry forward. I pray for each person here that they would be able to embrace the changes and welcome what you're doing and not try to look back and not try to make things the way they have been, but Lord, at each new season, at each new change, that they would look for what you're doing and that they would embrace your work here. And Lord, we just ask that you would show yourself strong and that the season of change would be good and that it would be, just be a time filled with joy and healing. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here specifically that's been in a cave, if they've just felt that despondency, maybe depression, Lord, just fill them with hope and with faith and love that they would hear your still small voice. Even through this message, Lord, help them to hear that you've spoken to them tonight through your word and that this message is for them.
and that you are showing yourself strong on their behalf and that you are reaching them and letting them know that you're there and that you care. You haven't abandoned them. You're not far away. You're right here with them and that everything's okay and that everything is under control and that you're gonna walk them through this season. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.